They should win the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done, done dusted. We win the game. Fish was cost you two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Shakiri hasn't he the funniest shape? He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. The joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. Hello and welcome to this week's Trade the Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. We're available everywhere you can find a podcast, including Spotify, so get on that and subscribe and keep up to date with us for the season ahead. Later on in part two of the show, we'll be speaking to Berry fan Jamie Hoyle about the club, which was on the brink of collapse at the weekend due to devastating financial troubles over the past few months. We'll be getting a fan's first-hand perspective of sporting club, which is hours from ruin after a 134-year history, despite earning promotion from League Two this past season. But first, I'm here as usual with Keen and Phil to talk about some of the major footballing talking points from the past weekend. How are you, lads? Well, Kev, how are you, Keen? Kevin, Philip, how are things? Now, Liverpool and Arsenal was penned in as this weekend's big Premier League game, but Liverpool made relatively light ease um, of a side who hadn't beaten a top six competitor away from home since January 2015. And this win made it 42 games unbeaten at Anfield for Liverpool with Mohamed Salah scoring a brace against David Luiz, whose performance was akin to Sideshow Bob repeatedly standing on rakes in that episode of The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> Phil, in league terms, it was Liverpool's biggest test thus far after a pretty mixed start to the league performance-wise, um, while Arsenal seemed to have had the firepower to trouble Liverpool going into it. Um, but that didn't really materialise. What did this result tell you about either side? Um, I think it kind of reinforced the fact that Liverpool finished 27 points ahead of Arsenal last year. Like, they were nine wins better than Arsenal last season. And I, like you said, Arsenal reinforced over the summer. It's quite good business, especially in the, kind of the attacking third. But really, the, that kind of gap still remains pretty much. Um, it just looked like a much better side, quite comfortably beaten. A, a pretty good side, but a side not on their level. So it kind of entrenched for me that gap we've talked about already this year in that like City and Liverpool seem to be separating themselves away from the rest of the top six, that it's the top two and kind of a, a four chasing them. It, it kind of really entrenched that again uh, with just with how kind of comfortable Liverpool were in the end, really. Yeah, you could only really echo those thoughts, to be honest, lads, because it, again, in, in sort of, in respect to like Manchester City against Spurs, despite the result, it was scary to see the, the, the difference in the quality. Um, and it was the same with against Arsenal and, and Liverpool. Like Liverpool were just streets ahead of them. And, you know, when the first goal went in, like past that point, it was just so comfortable for Liverpool. Like, I'd seen Miguel uh, Delaney's piece recently about how kind of like Liverpool's ethos is intensity and just you just see that so much. You know, in the majority of their games, where you know they they can just go up the gears and teams just can't stay with them. Um, yeah, I, like it's the, the annoyance for me really is on Arsenal's end of things. Really, you know, the, the whole Louise thing, and even though like you know the the, the whole side Joe Bob thing is used to sort of denigrate Louise, that's always kind of annoyed me a little bit because I always thought Liverpool were sorry. I always thought Louise himself was quite a good centre half, obviously prone to a certain um, error, and you know. He his his ability to 
make an absolute tit of you if you back him is just incredible. Um, like the the two the two mistakes that he did make were just unforgivable, really. From from what you would kind of put up there as reasonably like top level centre half, um, obviously prone to the odd error. But yeah, that was the real sort of frustrating thing for me because obviously he was brought in to kind of to be the linchpin of that centre half uh, for 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 Unai Emery, and already he's kind of he's. He's he's lapsed into this sort of like sideshow Bob character and um, mode where you just you're nearly afraid for him and he's he you could even see when he I think I'm not too sure if it was the penalty or it was the 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 turn that that Salad got him on the camera just zoomed in on him and you could just tell he was just mortified you know the, the, you could just tell he he was in 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 a bad way over it and yeah. um, but in terms of Liverpool like. Liverpool just did what Liverpool are going to do to the majority of teams in Anfield and steamroller them. Um, so I don't think you can learn too much out of that Liverpool performance, in essence, is what I'm saying. I felt going in that the narrative kind of centred around Arsenal's front three versus Liverpool's front three um, and mm. with the addition of Nicolas Pepe as being a kind of the third men that can match Liverpool's firepower in that way but coming out of it then you couldn't really ignore the gap between the quality of Liverpool's defence and Arsenal's defence and I mean Liverpool or Arsenal have spent quite a, a lot of money over the years on their defence and Liverpool when you look at they've found Joel Matip on a free transfer and he I thought was better than Van Dijk on the day and kind of the, the Twitter folk have kind of used Nicolas Pepe's sprint past Van Dijk as a, as a tick to beat him with, but nothing came of the attack and throughout the 90 minutes he didn't do anything really wrong. Whereas on the other side of the field, Maitland-Niles struggled. I thought Monreal wasn't very good. And I know they, they brought in David Luiz and he isn't, a, he isn't a bad defender, to be fair. But the money that they spend for the quality that they have on that back four is, is it put, could potentially put them out of the top four race come the end of the season. Yeah, and I thought Arsenal's shape was really, really interesting. Um, kind of when you said that the fullback struggled uh, for Arsenal, I thought it was interesting how narrow they played with their midfield and basically how they let uh, Liverpool's fullbacks, who most people would cite as one of Liverpool's attacking strengths, basically have free reign. Like I've been trying to figure out why exactly you'd deliberately play to your opponent's strengths, and the only thing I can think is that they were trying to offer the fullback so much room that they'd have no choice but to whip balls into the box, and that they were kind of backing themselves to to to, to hold to hold it kind of the, the the box without um without coughing that up too many chances. And like Liverpool didn't have loads of great chances in the first half until Matip's goal. Their pressure was cranking up, and like Keane was saying, like the intensity Liverpool play with, uh, they're quite good in that kind of middle third of the of the game. Uh, before halftime, mm. the 15 minutes before halftime and 15 minutes after halftime, they it's amazing how often they really go and kill teams. In that time, and they got the goal there, there uh, on, basically on half time with Matip. But um, I just thought it was interesting that, like, if you're talking about Monreal, who's kind of getting on in the years, and Maitland Niles, who was in the second season of establishing himself as a fullback, kind of converted mm. to midfield, I thought it was interesting that they gave so much room up Liverpool, maybe trying to negate the interplay between the front three and the fullbacks. I don't know, I, don't actually, I haven't actually figured out why they'd give so much room to Robertson and Trent, but when you go so narrow, uh, and you kind of pack the midfield, then you're 
you have to expect that your midfield is going to win the battle that they're given, and they, they didn't. Like I thought, I thought mm. Fabinho especially absolutely snapped into Ceballos. Uh, I thought Henderson did Henderson things, and similarly when Yaldum, like it, those two are quite workmanlike in terms of keeping the ball moving. And I thought when uh, Fabinho put his stamp on the game, and so if you're if you're Arsenal, you're gambling by giving the wings to Liverpool. You have to win the central dogfight, and I don't think they did that either. And um, so I suppose when Emery said he didn't want to play Liverpool last week, I guess he was telling the truth. Yeah, I, I, again, I could only echo those thoughts. Really, I mean, if Fabinho in particular was brilliant, but when you, you're flanked by Vijnaldum and and Henderson, who are just going to run like dogs all day, pressing you all over the field, uh, you're just in you're in a world of trouble already. Like you know, it's Liverpool had 25 shots um, at, at Arsenal's goal. Arsenal had like nine. Do you know what I mean? Like the the, the pressure essentially just was always going to tell at, at some point. Um, and like like we were saying earlier on, once Matip scored, it was kind of, that was it for Arsenal, you know? Um, yeah, like even when you look at the, um, when you look at the substitutions, the substitutions I thought were actually quite odd for for Arsenal in that, so they removed Ceballos, Willock and Wendouzi Um and they are the, the the substitutions that they actually brought on, arguably made Arsenal stronger. So I think mm-hmm. like the likes of uh, Mkhitaryan, Lacazette, and Torreira came on. Do you know what I mean? So it's for me like that was really. I think he got that wrong. Um, I think well, I think it might have been Neville that was talking about it afterwards. You know, I, I think he just made a bit of a balls of it because when you go to a side like like Liverpool, who are so well structured. And play to a certain style of, uh, you know, they're they're very very consistent in what they do, and, and and it's like, it's like Phil was saying, like they're so good at managing a game. There's actually that's probably one of their strongest, the their strongest traits under Klopp. I'd say over the last two seasons is how they just kill teams. They're just able to sort of strangle them, but particularly last season, they just don't let sides in mm. at all. Um, and Emery just kind of yeah, I think I, he made just terrible sort of selections um, starting out. But um, yeah, yeah, it just again it emphasized emphasized the the gulf in class between or oh, within that top six in terms of the top two and, and the rest. You know, it did. And then when you look at Liverpool substitutions. Um, and if you're a central midfielder and you've just been chasing Genie Wijnaldum for, for the guts of an hour and next thing you see James Miller mm-hmm. come on and then you chase him for the next 30 minutes. I mean, in terms of Arsenal starting, it seemed not necessarily tailor-made, but it did seem like more of a game for Lucas Torreira rather than Danny Caballas, who you know will, yeah. will take time to adjust to the Premier League and may didn't hugely stand out compared to, compared to last week for Arsenal. Um, and I think, I mean, he's been in and out of the side, but can they really afford to drop and uh, Lacazette? I mean, a lot of teams or a lot of managers, if 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 they were bringing Lacazette in and out of the team, would be getting absolutely lambasted for it. Whereas Arsenal mm. seem to be able to kind of get away with it. Yeah, uh, for for me, to a large extent, yes. However. If you look at the balance of the Arsenal side that started the game, you had Joe Willock, Granit Xhaka, Ankerin, Kunduzi, and Sabias in midfield. And like Pepe 
was playing out in the right, but seemed to be kind of like just sort of floating as well. Like that balance is all wrong for me. And it's like you said, Kev, it's like when you've got the likes of Milner and Oxley Chamberlain coming off the bench, who are essentially cardio animals, like they're just going to run and run and run. They're just going to they're just going to consume you. They're going to eat you alive. Um, one actual question I had for you lads was like, in terms of Oxley Chamberlain, there's obviously he's coming back from the injuries, eighteen months out, and you know it's kind of whereabouts is he? Does he fit in in the team? Because obviously before the injury, he was kind of playing in that Jordan Henderson role on the right hand side of of the central, you know, of the, of the central anchor. Well, maybe he was left and he was interchangeable, but he's he's kind of lost his way a little bit in the squad, or or that that's my sort of initial take on it. Yeah, I I'd agree. Um, like like you said before, he went out injured. He was in a great run of form. He was really making a difference to Liverpool. But that was kind of like breaking the lines with his runs and kind of gave him a bit of kind of forward thrust in midfield. But the complicated fact, like you said, is that Henderson, club captain kind of put his hand up at the end of last season and said, play me in that right-sided role. And like he does, he ticks so many of those boxes that you've talked about a couple of times now, Keane, for Klopp, that he'll, he'll just run all day and he'll run until he can't run anymore. And so for mo- in, in most cases, <clears throat> Klopp's going to love that because his <clears throat> his attacking outlets come from the, from the full-backs and from the front three. And in the large part, what we've seen from his midfield, uh, certainly in the last kind of 18 months, is that they've been really kind of workhorses. They'll just get through a great body of work and I don't think anyone can do that much better than Henderson I mean the people who can pass better can score better can screen the the back four better but there's very few people who will give you as much effort as he will so Chamberlain's going to drop down a few places he's also he's, he's slightly helped by the fact that Kite has been in and out of injuries uh, I think mm-hmm. Kite probably could have further stopped himself as that kind of creative option in midfield um, had, he, had he had a better run with injuries he hasn't done that yet so with Liverpool not adding anyone over the summer and then with Henderson and Wijnaldum offering similar type skills, it's still a toss-up, I think, between him and Kaida for if they were trying to break down a Burnley at home. Um, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be a mad surprise to see Chamberlain play. But I agree with you. I think um, Henderson's move has complicated things for Chamberlain. Uh, I don't think he was helped by when he came back. First, they were light up front and he had to play in the front three. And that really didn't mm-hmm. go well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see it. Like he was out for a long time with a very serious injury, and I hope he can get back to where he was uh, in that kind of seventeen eighteen season. Um, but yeah. the path probably isn't as straightforward for him. I'd agree with you there, as as it was. Yeah, it, it, it's not just the path either. It's also you've got Shakiri, Lalana, and yeah. Milner who are all able to play. You know, in those interchangeable midfield four positions. Do you know what I mean? So it's like he he's got a double problem now. So you just hope that he can make it back to, you know, very, like his previous level of fitness and form and um, to give himself a good chance. Um, but yeah, because it, it would be an obvious, it would be a huge waste um, and a huge shame, obviously, if he couldn't. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. Um, he's kind of fallen into the trap where he's good enough to come on for Manny or sell it late on in games, but probably not good yeah. enough to start. And he's good enough to come on for any of the midfield three. But at the moment, he's probably not up to speed in terms of starting terms. Um, I mean, since he's got injured, um, Fabinho has come on. And I think he's probably mm. Liverpool's most undroppable midfielder in terms of what he provides. Yeah. Um, 
I think Wijnaldum has kind of played into a, a, a nearly undroppable kind of role when what he provides there. And then, like Phil said, we still have Naby Keita to come back. And I think when he does, yeah. Klopp will be keen to give him as much time as possible because we kind of lost a year with him last year. And I think when he is fit and available, I reckon he will see a lot of minutes because there'll be slight pressure on him to get him up to speed and get him into that kind of creative the key to unlock the Burnleys and Norwiches and, you know, the kind of teams lower down the down the pecking order there. Yeah. An embarrassment of riches, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we'll move on quickly. Um, and a shock result popped up on Sunday afternoon with Newcastle beating Spurs in a very early example of Spursiness this season. Um, not least because I had Harry Kane captain in my fantasy team and was fully uh-huh. expecting a handful of goals against... Uh, <laughs> A fairly papery defence, but um, in fairness, Newcastle, led by Joe Linton up front, looked every bit deserving of the win. Um, and I think especially with Christian Eriksen starting from the bench once again for Spurs. Um, Phil, uh, how, how damaging a loss is this for Spurs against a side that was looking to be a, a sort for a relegation dogfight after the first two weeks of the year? Yeah, I mean, like I, I think after the first week of the season um, and Spurs playing Villa, I kind of came on here and I said that Spurs being behind against Villa for so long was kind of typical of what Spurs do. They hope and they puff a bit and then they get things moving. I think the big thing for me, having watched this game yesterday, was how much they struggled to get anything moving. Like They were so blunt. Um, like I, like As the game wore on and they cranked up the pressure and they were going forward more and more, but there was actually no tangible attempts, nothing that was overly scary. Um, loads of block shots from Newcastle, which was really good, but like Spurs didn't create a whole heap. They put on loads of pressure uh, and moved the ball around, but actually went nowhere. Even when Ericsson came on, and I know we talked about that at the uh, at the outset of the season, how important he was for them to kind of have a bit of cut and trust in that midfield. It just wasn't there. Kane had a bit of an off day, and um, like you said, Newcastle were quite there. I thought I was really impressed with Joe Eaton. I am um, mm. like when he signed for like forty million going to Newcastle, it looked ripe to be like an absolute stinker of a signing, just because Newcastle don't seem to get Anton right. Um, I thought he looked kind of ripe to be one of the candidates for a worst sign in the season. On that uh, performance, looks like I was way off. I was really impressed by his hold-up play. Uh, took the goal quite nicely. Like I don't think ultimately it's going to say a whole heap about Newcastle. The same problems I think are still there. I think this just further entrenches the problem with Spurs. And Potch's, um comments after the game were quite interesting that it's the most unsettled squad he's ever had. Uh, he was kind of a bit tetchy when people were asking about Ericsson. Uh, it's still unclear as, as to where things are going to go with him. Um, it just kind of feels like they've reached the end of a cycle a little bit, which is a shame um, because like, it's been such a massive overachievement from Spurs, but this just feels like it's happening a little too often with them. I- I'm not surprised that Poch actually feels like it's an unsettled squad because you know they've actually signed players for once. Do you know what I mean? So it's like they've, they've, yeah. they've signed four to five new players. So like th- that turnover essentially is, is huge, relatively speaking, to what's going on maybe over the last... To previous seasons, you know, um, but and obviously the the, the whole Ericsson thing, I think, is 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 a huge issue too because he really should be in that starting lineup. I think they're, you know, I think, but in essence, they've got they've now got for those midfield positions they've got Ericsson, um, Nombele and Lucelso. Yeah. So I mean, like there, there's a, there's a case there where there's like too many cooks spoiling the broth, but t- 
to be honest, guys, like the way I look at that Spurs Newcastle game is it it was very reminiscent of the Villa Spurs game in that you know Spurs huffed and puffed and a lot of possession, but couldn't really didn't really get anywhere um, until you know a stroke of luck, and then kind of Villa Villa folded then after that. Whereas they, they, they didn't get the rub of the green against Newcastle. Newcastle held on and held on. The ball didn't really break for them. There was a couple of moments where it was it could have broke for, for Kane and Kane could have had an easy goal, but it didn't go for them and, and Newcastle were able to clear. So it was like, they've done, and to be honest, they're not having as many shots on target as you'd expect, you know, considering they've played Villa Newcastle and who else was it in the middle game? It escapes me now. City. 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 I mean, they they had minimal shots in those game, in that game as well. So I mean, like, I'd be interested to see their their XG um to to yeah. to see where they're at. But I reckon um I reckon they have serious issues. And I, I'm not just I, I'm throwing out there in, in terms of is Harry Kane a huge problem here? I, I'd love to basically speak to a to a sports fan with a bit of perspective on this. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I think he, he could be a, a major issue in terms of the creativity of, of the side. I'm not saying that like he's not a fantastic striker. He looks in fine fettle, but I'm wondering about his overall dynamic on the actual side and how it, how it plays. Because they, they they really, really do, and that they, they are struggling to break down these sides, do you know? Absolutely. And like you said, they've brought in Los Elso and, and Dombele, and they also have Ericsson, who appears unlikely to leave before the for the end of the European transfer at least, mm. um, but at the same time they haven't been any appearance to at least even have a backup for Harry Kane, so he's in that position now where he's pretty he's absolutely one hundred percent untrappable, but he's not even an option to come off at any game because they don't have a player to replace him, whereas they have five or six players in that kind of attacking role and he seems to be keen on Eric Lamella at the moment behind yeah. Kane I mean Son you have uh, Lucas Mora and then you've Ericsson and Loselso who both came off the bench um on Sunday and that's all while uh Indombele was was out injured. Um mm-hmm. and I think like Phil said they seem they're doing a lot of movement over and back and there's a lot of kind of passing side to side and in those kind of situations, Harry Winks and Musa Sissoko aren't going to be anywhere near capable of unlocking a defence, especially um, the way Newcastle lined up with five at the back. And it was, it was kind of a very Rafa Benitez performance in that it was probably the best, by far the best defensive performance they had all season under Steve Bruce. Mm. And you just have to wonder, I mean, Ericsson simply has to start at this point and he should be more in more undroppable than, than Harry Kane. Yeah, no, like, I mean, we, we saw the difference it made to the performance against Villa. I know, Key, and, uh, and you rightly say they, they got a slice of luck to get them moving. Um, but he, he made a difference coming on, um, and it didn't quite happen against Newcastle. Like you said, Kev, like Newcastle were quite well organised with their back five or whatever. Um, but it, it, it does feel that, like, if Kane doesn't do something, it feels like a bit of a struggle to see what else is going to happen, other than having all these really nice attacking midfielders. Like the actual like knife between the teeth, twenty goal a season striker. If it's not Harry Kane, like 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 obviously you're picking two of the best sides in Europe. But if it's not Aguero, it's Jesus, it's Sterling, it's Bernardo Silva, and if it's not Firmino, it's Mane, it's Salah. Um, mm-hmm. it just feels like somebody to kind of carry the team on their back if 
Harry Kane isn't able to do it, uh, isn't forthcoming. And I think that's to your point earlier, lads, that like he's kind of put himself in that position, and he's made himself yeah. almost too central. To, to, Sorry, go on, Kane. No, I was just going to say to be fair to Spurs, it would probably be remiss not to mention that they should have had two penalties. I mm. don't want to get into the whole VAR <laughs> thing because because essentially it's, not it's still. Week. Well, not this week, but it's still it's still down to poor poor <laughs> yeah. interpretation of the rules by the officials. But like those two were penalties. The one on Harry Kane maybe less of a penalty, but the one I on Sun was, was uh, you didn't think it was a pen. I don't think it was a pen. I think I think last season it would have been given because I think uh, it's Harry Kane, England captain. Spurs are losing at mm. home, and the fans and the players would have given Mike Dean loads. I think this year he was able to trust that if he really fucked up, Far would have caught it. And he was happy enough to leave mm. it go. I think Kane could have stayed up. I think Kane should have stayed up. Uh, and if his team wasn't 1-0 down, I think he would have stayed up. I think he was looking for the yeah, easy I, out. Now, that's just me. I, and I, I wouldn't have yeah. gone mad if it wasn't given. But or if, Sorry, if it was given, I, I could have seen how. I, just, I think the Sun one was a penalty. Uh, I don't necessarily think the Kane one was. But again, I could see how it would be given. I was just kind of staring. I, I, just don't, I just don't think you can throw yourself... Like like a salmon, mm. right, to the <laughs> ground at the ball, not make contact, make contact with another player and not give away a penalty. It just does not make sense to me. Like, um, like it, you know, the, the contact with, with Kane, okay, wasn't substantial, but you can't just throw yourself at the ball like that and not make contact, hit mm. Kane, and then not give away a penalty. It's just that's, that's just nonsensical to me. But I mean, like. I can, I mean, like, if you're disagreeing with it and I'm agreeing that it should be a penalty, then okay, by the interpretation of the laws, maybe they had a case for not awarding the penalty. But at the end of the day, the, 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 the Sun penalty, like, that was 100% the penalty. Like, how they could look at that again and go no was just, uh, I, I don't know, like, um, Specsaver should have been on to the lad in, in, in the, VR, the VAR room. And uh, remind you, man, Leach from from the England cricket side. I know we're not doing a big thing on VAR, but did you see what the ma- uh, professional match officials group said about why the penalties weren't given? Yeah, I so, hear. Go on. Ref- so the language is so uh, the famous language that we've all heard since the start of the season is that there had to be a clear and obvious error. But the language they came out with after the Spurs game and after the uh, City game when David Silva didn't get a penalty from Jefferson Lerma was that. Um, the calls on field were not reversed because it was a subjective decision. Um, but people can be wrong with subjective opinions. So now it's not just a clear and obvious error. It's if a if anything is subjective. But like all penalties, surely are going to be subjective. Um, well, like my language for that is they can stick it up their bollocks because that is absolute <laughs> nonsense. Nonsense. Like I don't want to get into a whole like old man sh- shouting a cloud meme. Like what? No, that is bollocks. Um, I think what Phil said I think in any other season it probably would have been a penalty I mean for the stupidity alone of Lascelles' attempt to just kind of face dive into the ball and I think Kane it looked like he was kind of he kind of fell over easily but he was probably anticipating a kind of a bit of a soldier barge from Lascelles next thing he looks down and Lascelles is kind of face first in the grass Um yeah, he was probably in shock. He was probably in shock <laughs> that some human threw his face at, yeah. at, at him. Do you know what I mean? At his feet. Like, uh, yeah, that, yeah, bizarre. 
Um, a story that popped up over the weekend um, from David Snade in the Irish Independent, which kind of came from nowhere, really, um, was that Ireland have reportedly begun looking at Leicester City's James Madison's willingness to switch allegiance to Ireland. Um, to me, it smacks of Madison forcing England to play their cards and caught him up in the next round of games. And to be honest, um, I was convinced he had already played for England at senior level at some point last year, um, but he hasn't actually um, played a game yet. Keane... We've had our fingers burnt by Declan Rice switching <laughs> England um, and Jack Relish, of course. We're due one in the other direction, are we? <laughs> I don't think we are. Um, well, if we are, <laughs> if we are, it certainly won't be James Madison. Um, I, I don't really sure. believe. Yeah, I, I think you're probably spot on, Kev. I would say that it's it's Madison's agent, maybe sort of for trying to force Gareth Southgate's hand, which by all accounts. Sounds like it's going to happen. I think he's going to be uh, he's going to be put into the squad for for the upcoming uh, qualifiers, which which is fair enough. Like he's he's a brilliant player. Like he is yes. a really really good player. If, if you've seen the the assist for Vardy's goal, Vardy's opener yeah. at the weekend, it was just absolute yeah, magic nice. outside of the right boot. Lovely yeah. into his path. You know he's a great little player. You'd love him to to to, to rock up in the green, but it ain't going to mm-hmm. happen. However, however, um, what I do think. It's nearly a precursor for what could happen later down the line because obviously England's youth production at the minute is top class. Like yeah. whatever decisions had been made maybe like 10 years ago, they've got it spot on. And, you know, St George's Park are, are absolutely pumping out talented young um, players. What's going to happen is maybe a rerun of, um, of the 90s. You know, time is a flat circle and all that crack. What's going to happen is there's going to be such an overproduction of of these players, they're not all going to get into the England squad, mm. and a lot of them are going to have Irish lineage. So the natural, uh, their natural journey is going to be to to turn out for Ireland. So, you know, while we might not get Madison, we might get a handful of of really good uh, talented players, which is in itself even even kind of thinking that way is a little bit depressing because we should be doing this ourselves. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And You know, it's back of this whole, again, it's just, you know, you're just chasing your tail on the thing the whole time. Um, yeah. But I mean, like, look, James Madison might not turn out, I think Daniel Crowley, um, the ex-Arsenal, ex-Villa, uh, young, like, wonder kid who's now at Birmingham City, um, he looks like he's going to be joining up with the Irish squad um, fairly soon. And by all accounts, he's going to be like, he's been terrific. He was terrific over in, um, over in Holland in, in the Eredivisie um, and got the move back to, to uh, Birmingham City. Now, obviously, look, it's Birmingham City and it's the championship and whatever else. But apparently he's, he started on fire there. He's been really, really impressive. So, yeah. He he could be, and he obviously plays as a he plays as a number ten kind of like he floats between number eight and number ten, which is exactly what we need. Um, so I think Big Mick gets him on board ASAP, and we might not have to worry too much about missing out in the likes of Madison for now. Mm. Um, that's a fair point you made about um, maybe kind of players switching the opposite way in the next couple of years, um, and I was thinking. Madison have to play this card when he's been performing at a fairly good level in the Premier League for the past year and a bit. 
Um, and then you look at the volume of kind of attacking players that England seem to be coming out with now recently, mm. um, with Mason Mount kind of emerging this year, and you've Grealish as well kind of staking his claim now in the Premier League. And I was reading there last week um, some young Watford kind of a, a attacking playmaker sort of a, a style player um, has switched to Scotland. So, I mean, he could be the benefit of a number of UK nations plus the Republic of Ireland where there's such a huge volume, especially now that, that over the past 10, 15 years that there's been such a craving for that kind of kind of dinky little playmaker that England mm. might end up having too many of them. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I think... Um you had it, you had spot on that <clears throat> kind of the decisions they made ten years ago in a, in kind of a high performance sense are starting to pay off now, and there's only so many people you can pick in a squad, and fellas are probably going to realise pretty quickly that if they're not up to near near the top of their list pretty quickly, that uh, they're going to struggle to pick up too many caps. I definitely agree with you, Ken. That is quite a depressing thought that we're kind of licking our lips <laughs> and rubbing our hands together at mm. the thought of like fishing kind of overpopulated waters, um coming out of the English FA and it kind of lets the FAI off the hook a little bit in terms of player development if there's just pathway coming straight to them um, that said I'll hardly be complaining if you know for the 2032 World Cup um, some English born striker pops up and you know puts us into a quarter final or something I mean I'll celebrate that <laughs> yeah, yeah. but um, it, it, it like it, it, it is encouraging in one hand because, you know, we, we could be the benefactors, but then it's also a little bit discouraging because for every couple of lads you're going to get, there's, you're still running the risk of uh, a Declan Rice or a Jack Grealish that, you know, if things do turn around for them until they actually have the cap on them. I, like, I think Wales have been quite smart recently in getting players on board really early, like a capped Woodburn um, really soon after he played for Liverpool. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, he might have actually only been in the squad. I don't know if he'd even played for Liverpool. They capped Ampadu quite early as well. Both of those were eligible for uh, for English selection. Uh, Woodburn hasn't worked out necessarily, but Ampadu looks like he's going to be a really, really good player and quite possibly could have been English standard, uh, but Wales capped him off quite early. So I suppose there's ways to do it and maybe those ways you feel slightly more attachment to them, like with Rice, <laughs> still went wrong. It kind of felt he was more attached as an under 21 player, how he celebrated the winner and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. maybe if you do it the right way and kind of integrate them and show them a proper and encouraging pathway, um, but ultimately, like Keane said, you, you would still like to see that happen alongside a development mm. of our underage talent here, if possible. I'll tell you who else I can remember his name. Rob Little. He's the guy who ran away and left his wife for a young. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's a office, small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls.
Bury Football Club's 134-year history in football was on the brink of collapse this weekend as owner Steve Dale looks to sell the club amid horrendous financial issues and the threat of liquidation. The club has yet to play a game this season and has already been docked 12 points in League One, having been promoted from League Two last year. No club since 1992 has been expelled from the Football League and Bury appear to be going quickly in that direction before new ownership interest appeared at the last second on Saturday night to postpone the threat of closure for another few days at least until a takeover can be completed. We've got Bury fan Jamie Hoyle on to talk about the issues surrounding the club. I think we'd like to get a, a picture of the timeline of the club over the past year or so. Um, Steve Dale's time at the helm hasn't been hugely long. Um, he only took over in December of 2018, which at the time may have felt like the club saving grace as they competed for promotion from League Two um, and achieved it automatically on the penultimate day of the season. So things on the field weren't going, were going pretty good. But how did we get from Steve Dale buying the club for a pound to this past weekend's last-minute rescue? So... As you said, um, Steve Dale took over the club in December of last year. Um, I think what's interesting and the bit that people might not know is that there is a history of financial mismanagement at Bury Football Club. I mean, we could start this story in 2002 with ITV Digital. We could start this in story in 2013 with Stuart Day taking over. But all you need to know is that by the time that Steve Dale took over, um, we were in a complete mess. Um, there was a mortgage for £2.2 million on the ground at the start of 2018. And of that £2.2 million, 40% had never, ever been seen by the club. Um, we had signed the likes of Jermaine Beckford, Harry Bunn and Chris Maguire uh, in a last-ditch attempt to uh, get to the championship, and they got us relegated to League Two. So it wasn't a rosy picture when uh, Steve Dale came in at all. Um, so he came in, he assured the public that he had a new lease on life uh, since battling leukemia and that he came to Bury Football Club because he wanted to work with disadvantaged kids and build facilities at Carrington and stuff like that. Um, his business history, on the other hand, isn't quite so nice. Um, he has a history of asset stripping insolvent companies and shutting them down. But he has say he assured people that he was in it for the right reasons. Um, shortly after that, um, Stuart Day, the previous owner, his property empire called Maderco collapsed into administration. Um, and it came out later that Berry FC owed it £7 million in intercompany loans. Um, staff at Berry start to report not having the wages paid, uh, and the club has a wind up hearing adjourned that was brought by our former player and former manager, Chris Brass. Uh, in May, that winding up petition was withdrawn by uh, Chris Brass. However, HMRC, who are owed several hundred thousand pounds in taxes, take over the petition. Uh, they continue to pursue it and they get, and that petition then gets adjourned again because Steve Dale says that there's people ready to take over the club. Uh, in amidst all this, uh, Berry's players are still not being paid. They haven't been paid pretty much since February, March. And they still go on to get promotion. They still go on to um, win promotion to League One. And the community spirit and the the fight that they showed is something that will stay with Berry fans for an awful long time. Uh, so now we're start of June. Dale's promised bidders are absolutely nowhere in sight. Staff are not being paid, players aren't being played, and they start to leave. Um, you, Ryan Lowe uh, heads to Plymouth and takes the likes of Danny Mayer with him. Uh, and 
Steve Dale decides that he's going to negotiate a CVA. So for those who may not know what a CVA is, it's a arrangement with creditors that allows you to pay them a certain percentage of that money in order to uh, write off the debt effectively. Um, so he negotiates a CVA um, that says, I will pay all creditors 25p in the pound. Uh, and the mortgage on the ground, which is now at £3.7 million because the interest rate of £1,500 a day isn't part of the CVA. And that CVA gets rejected. Um, the creditors decide it isn't enough money and they want to see more from uh, Steve Dale. Uh, and then almost immediately, uh, a new company called RCR Holdings um, comes on. They claim that Berry Football Club owes them £7 million. Now, if you've heard that figure before, um, that's from Madurko. That's the um, that's the company that went into administration. It then transpires that this company called RCR Holdings is owned by Steve Dale's daughter's partner. Um, so what has happened there is that in order to get that CVA passed, um, someone associated with Steve Dale has come on and found a magical £7 million. Uh, and so the CVA passes. Um Barry SC had deducted 12 points for the upcoming season, and all seems rosy. Um, then we get to the pre-season friendlies, right? Uh, pre-season friendlies. I went to a pre-season friendly at Nantwich um, with my dad, and I got a team sheet handed to me, and every single name on that pre- on that team sheet said trialist. I have never, I don't know about you guys, I've never seen anything like that, have you? No. Never. I've definitely seen Never. examples in League of Ireland, but you might have three or four names at most, not rather than a, a full starting eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's in, it's it's just insane. It's um, and Steve Dale's still sat there, still assuring people that it's going to be all right. Um, <laughs> he then gets questioned by the FL, saying, "Where's your money? How are we going to start the season?" Uh, and he tells them that there's a one and a half million pound credit facility that has been made available to him. So the FL says, go on then, show us. And he doesn't. Um, uh, the EFL wants to see proof of this. Uh, he can't provide it. And then they suspend the first game of the season. And at this point, Berry have, I believe, five contracted players. Which is great, you know, for five-a-side team that play football. <laughs> but, you know, not so great for, for League One football. Jimmy, um, this all sounds very uh, Brexit. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, this is going to be okay but show me the evidence and then there's no evidence to back it up um, so yeah, how much is actually owed to, to keep Barry solvent how much is owed at the minute so I think the CVA uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me I think the CVA is about two and a half million pounds with a further one million pounds owed to footballing creditors because under EFL regulations, uh, footballing creditors like staff and players have to be paid in full. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these, what happens next is that game after game continues to be suspended, right? Um, the buyers that Steve Dale mentioned, again, have vanished. Um, community groups like Forever Berry, who were set up in 2002 uh, when we nearly went into a liquidation then and the local MPs are trying to find and trying to introduce buyers to no avail and then the EFL activates the notice of expulsion which gives Steve Dale 14 days until that was up until Friday the 23rd of August to prove he has the ability to complete the season sell the club to someone who does or we get expelled from the football league which is a nightmare scenario really as someone who's followed Barry for 
an awful, awful long time. Bringing us up to this past weekend, um, it sounded like there was minutes and hours between Bury remaining a football club in the, in, in, in the league and not. And it sounds like um, a CNN sports management firm have kind of appeared to as possible takeover um, from Steve Dale and they've been given till Tuesday to kind of sort all that out. What is the, the the thoughts behind that? Are fans positive that something will be completed there or is it kind of a, a, a hidden hope more than anything? It's, uh, I think it's touch and go, uh, to be honest. Uh, we first found out about them at 10pm on Friday night. So that's two hours before we were going to be expelled from the Football League. A couple of hours before that, Steve Dale had told Byers that he would be the last chairman of Berry Football Club, which wasn't exactly what we wanted to hear. Um, so it's a very, very complex transaction uh, because of the CVA, because of the Maderco debt, because of the, the charge on the ground. It's the kind of thing that would typically take weeks and weeks of due diligence and weeks and weeks of negotiation. Uh, the FL has extended the deadline until Tuesday, but that's one working day. Um, and nobody involved is particularly happy with that. Uh, oh, excuse me. Um, you'd have to you have to hope that they will pull out all the stops to get it over the line. Um, and people at the club seem confident, so we'll have to see how it goes. The video you made, um, which is available on YouTube, if anyone would like to check it out by searching "This is Our Berry," paints uh, a beautiful picture of how a football club and a community and its people kind of intertwine. And I suppose, firstly, we'd like to ask how your your love for the club came about, and also what is the feeling like in the community at the moment and amongst fans with such uncertainty kind of surrounding the club. Yeah, so um, I went first went to a very game when I was uh, three years old with my dad, and that was it. Really, I've been a fan ever since. It becomes part, of, you know, on a Saturday afternoon. I go to my grandma's, uh, I meet with me my uncle, my cousin, my dad, we all get around the table, we have a bit of a nap, a bit of a laugh, pint a pint, and then off to the game. And it's that that I think is so important for the community of Bury, is that there's not many places where, you know, three, four thousand people get together anywhere anymore. So, and that's what the Bury Football Club means to the town of Bury, is that there are these relationships and the the position that it has in the community is so, so powerful and so, so strong. And that is why, if you've seen the video, you'll see that people are absolutely desolate about the thought of that going away. Yeah, Jamie, I just wanted to ask, yes. you know, as a follow up to that, really, in terms of, you know, the you, Barry is in such close proximity to in terms of the Greater Manchester area, it's it's so close to the likes of Manchester United and Manchester City, and obviously you know Barry being one of the oldest oldest clubs alongside those two. I mean, is there is there a real sense of resentment to to the those two Premier League giants and how much money they are, they have and and you know are you just kind of as fans of Barry are you crying out for? A, a helping hand. I know City have kind of have have lent Carring, Carrington to you as training facility and whatnot. But I mean, in terms of just two and a half million being owed um, or thereabouts, are you are you just kind of as fans of that? Just going, please, just give us this money and, and let us kick on. I think 
resentment's probably the wrong word. Um, we've lived in the city, in the shadow, sorry, of City and United for quite some time. But I think it's a wider problem in English football is that the way that football clubs like Bury, like Bolton, like Macclesfield are funded isn't fit for purpose. Last year in League Two, we received a solidarity payment from the Premier League of £470,000. That's a week for Alexis Sanchez's wages, right? It's... We we don't put enough focus on what clubs like Berry do for the English game. Um, without clubs like Berry and this football pyramid, you wouldn't have a successful England national team. You wouldn't have the likes of Deli Alley or Harry Kane come through the ranks, or the famous example being Jamie Vardy. Mm. And it it doesn't it shouldn't rely on the generosity of clubs like Manchester City, who have been very very good with us. But it mm. shouldn't need people to feel like they should step in it should be enforced i think it should be a matter of the premier league recognizing what good community clubs do and creating a fairer funding and distribution system jamie it's uh, phil here just with a, a quick one it's kind of something you alluded to just there um unfortunately barry aren't a, the first football league club to kind of fall foul of problems like this in the last couple of years like um, you know, we were talking to talk about people like Blackpool, Coventry, Northampton, Leighton Orient, who are still experiencing their problems to a greater or lesser degree. South End and Oxford United last year, and then Bolton kind of most readily alongside you guys at the minute. Um, are there any common com- common threads to any of those stories? Like, uh, like the big thing I suppose that jumps out to me is like, why are there so many bad owners allowed access to football league clubs? Yeah, um, I think a com- commonality between those is bad owners. Um, and I think it's because... It's attractive. Um, for some reason, football seems to attract an awful lot of people who come into football clubs either to profit off a community or because their ego gets in the way. And you don't make very good financial decisions when your ego gets in the way. The entire football league is set up to encourage gambling uh, by club owners to try and get to the next tier of English football. If you're a League 2 club, then you get far more money for being in League 1 and you get bigger gates. If you're in League 1, you think you can get to the Championship because if you're in the Championship, then you might be able to get a £140 million payday from the Premier League. So owners will gamble money that they don't have to try and progress up that pyramid. And owners will make decisions that are not in the best interest of their community, but in the best interests of their ego and in the best interests of their bank balance and i say unless you start to actually employ a fit and proper person's test because let's face it the current one does not ensure people are fit and proper you need to employ a proper thing to ensure community value and you need to ensure the funding structure is right you need both of those in order to ensure that we get to a position where community clubs are running in a self-sustaining and effective manner and in your opinion like, what would that fit and proper person's test look like? Would it kind of, as you said, build in something about the kind of societal values of these clubs? Because they are kind of the last social institutions in a lot in a lot of these towns around the UK, as you've been saying. Like, what sort of changes would you see as making a real difference? Or do you think it's a problem maybe that's kind of gone too far? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right when you talk about societal value. And when I'm looking for owners, I would like to see a test that does reflect that. Um you, the AFL should have been able to take one look at Steve Dell's business history, as I did, as many other fans did, and realise that this person is not able to run a football club. 
you should take a look at the likes of Ken Anderson and you should notice that Ken Anderson has paid himself half a million pounds in director's fees at Bolton while they're in League One and realise that he's not in there for the community. Um, I'm not entirely sure of what hard and fast rules you would apply um, but we have to sit down and we have to have an open conversation about why people get into football and how we ensure they're there for the benefit of the community, not for the benefit of themselves. Yeah, completely agree. Jamie, I just one question um, myself. In terms of uh, the best case scenario here, where, like, for instance, hypothetically speaking, this takeover is done, what, you're 12 points down already you've got the first six games i think suspended um you don't really have a squad of players as yet i think it's five to six contracted players what happens if this takeover goes through um i think if this takeover goes through um i will celebrate relegation like we've won the champions league um <laughs> there's been points <laughs> there's been points where you genuinely think you're not going to watch. You're not going to watch a game on a Saturday. I've been thinking, you know, for two, three weeks now, I'll never watch my hometown football club again. So if we go to Doncaster and if we play at Doncaster on Saturday, and we sign, we put out all the youth players, we sign all the trialists, we do whatever we do to get that game on, and we lose six 0 I'll be so so happy. Uh, I think every single Berry fan has uh, written off this next season. I cannot see a situation in which we escape relegation. To be honest, I can't see a situation in which we end the season on positive points. But we'll still have the football club and we'll still have this heart of the community. And if there's one thing going through the past few months has made me realise is that it doesn't matter what goes on on the pitch. What matters is ensuring that you have something to do and ensuring that the community is there and the community can help. Well said, Jamie. Um, I think what you put it there, promotions... And relegation is kind of come and go, but at least you have a, a football club to support week in, week out, rather than having um, the uncertainty and of having no club potentially um, from one week to the next. Um, and I certainly hope that come three o'clock on Saturday, that Bury, or who they have on the field, are learning 11 players out against Doncaster Rovers. And I think kind of everyone following the story over the past week or so certainly do as well. Um, You've been very good. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Thanks for having Jamie. Great. Thanks, come on, Jamie. Cheers. Thanks to Jamie Hoyle, very passionate Berry fan there. And Jamie kindly provided a, a timeline of events over the past two decades or so of Berry FC. So I think we'll make that available on backpagefootball.com because it's been an absolutely mad story and it would probably rival the Game of Thrones in some of the little tidbits there and side stories that have gone on. <laughs> So I think we'll leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're available, like I said at the start, we're available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, everywhere you can get a podcast, you will find three at the back. So we'd really appreciate if you could subscribe and support the show. Thanks, Keen. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, lads. Thanks a million, lads.